A few moments ago, we saw these words from the book of Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. We mentioned how this is a bold prayer. It's asking God to to move in our ways to to reveal what's in our hearts. And we're going to look at a passage today in which certain circumstances occur in the life of Jesus and his disciples, which reveal what's in their hearts. And we're going to look at that this day. But before we do so, I wanted to stop and just ask you this question. Have you ever stopped to consider that the very situations you find yourself in are tests that reveal much about you? We can say, Lord, search me and know my thoughts. Test me, try me, and know my heart. But that happens all the time, week in and week out. And so I wonder if, if we began to see life as, as a test and the things that happen in our life as tests which reveal a lot about who we are. Other people see it, the Lord sees it, but how in tune are we for that? I want to ask that question because I'm going to ask you as we go through this passage to actually put yourself in the sandals of the disciples on that evening in which Jesus is betrayed. And we're going to see what happens with them and seek to apply that to our life as well. And so we're going to be looking at that passage where Jesus prays the famous prayer, not my will, but yours be done. But we're actually going to start at the very last words that Jesus spoke during what was called the Last Supper, before they actually go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays those words. And let me tell you, I was tempted to skip this passage <laughs> because I actually didn't know what to do with it. I've read this for many years. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. One scholar called this passage the most difficult passage in the Gospel of Luke. And so with that as an introduction, let me just invite you to pray with me as we get ready to look at this most difficult passage and as we watch the disciples go into the garden where Jesus is arrested and ask the Lord to teach us in this moment. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather together to open up this ancient historical biography of Jesus that we call the Gospel of Luke, help us to understand what's going on here. Uh, we always need your help, but especially this day as, as we encounter some things that just seem on the surface to not make sense, to go against everything that we have thought and believed. And so help us as we think through that, help us as we think through being tested and being tried, and help us for ourselves in the, in the sandals of the disciples as they go through really the biggest trial of their life. And as we watch them Teach us something about ourselves and your grace as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's dig in, my friends. Chapter 22, verse 35. This is the last thing Jesus is talking to them about just after they had the Lord's Supper together and right before they go to the garden to pray. So he says to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Jesus, of course, is referring to early in his ministry when he would send his disciples out ahead of him to the towns and villages in Israel to prepare the way, to to tell them Jesus is coming, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And so he would often send them out and say, I don't want you to take any supplies with you. And so he refers back to those times and he said, did you lack anything? And they replied, nothing. Verse 36, he said to them, but now. 
Something has now changed. What has changed? Now, remember, they're in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, during the holy day of Passover, in which they remember the revolutionary act of God in liberating their nation from Egypt way back in the day. And now they're under Roman rule. And the smell of revolution is in the air. But that's not all that's going on. We've, we've already seen the passage where we're told that Satan, this, this spiritual being called the accuser, has entered one of Jesus' disciples named Judas. And so they know a traitor is in the midst of them. So everyone is on edge. So Jesus said, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything? Nothing. But now, listen to what he says. But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword Sell his cloak and buy one. I wonder if you're thinking in your mind, um, why is Jesus telling his disciples to arm themselves? Maybe some of you are like, wait, what was just said? Let's look at that again. Yep, right there. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. What do you do with that? With everything you know about Jesus, why is he telling his disciples that if they don't have any swords, now would be a good time to get one? When we think of swords, these were daggers that basically many people carried around. These were handy for cutting things up, chopping. Also, if you're out in the wild, defending yourself against wild animals. And also, occasionally, if someone attacks you, you have something to defend yourself with. Sometimes these were used to attack other people. So this is what they're, they're talking about here. You shouldn't think of like a, a big sword like you might see in Lord of the Rings or something like that. These are just short daggers that sit on this side. Many people carry them. Part of the reason I was kind of tempted to skip this was because I didn't really know what to do with this. <laughs> yes, I've gone to seminary. And yes, I have lots of, of commentaries. And when I looked at those commentaries... I kind of considered the options of what they were saying. Some of the commentators just pretended Jesus didn't say this. <laughs> they just kind of skipped over this and didn't say anything. Boy, was that discouraging. Some of them said, well, Jesus was just being dramatic. He's just being over the top. He's, he's speaking in a hyperbole like he did sometimes. But it doesn't seem quite right with me either. If Jesus wanted them to not carry swords, well, why would he tell them to carry swords? Sometimes the commentators say, well, they're, they're speaking about spiritual warfare. They need the word of God as the sword. And while the scriptures do call the word of God the sword of God, this isn't something they could go out and buy. So that option didn't really sit well with me. Another option commentators go for is to saying, well, Jesus is referring to the future expansion of the gospel. He's looking past his arrest and his crucifixion, his resurrection to that day when he's going to send the disciples out to the four corners of the world. So he's telling them that they're going to be leaving the safe confines of Israel, and so they're going to need to be armed, because who knows what kind of danger they might face. I'm not really buying that option either. He hasn't really talked to them about going out into the world to do that to go preach the gospel out there. He's going to tell them that, but he hasn't really focused on that. And so is there another option that we might consider 
as to why Jesus, the Prince of Peace, would tell his disciples to buy swords. And I think there is. He says, but now let the one who has no swords sell his cloak and buy one. For, I tell you, Jesus has given the reason right here why he wants them to go arm themselves. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So there's two statements giving the reason, both with the word for. Jesus says, scripture must be fulfilled. And what is that scripture? He was numbered with the transgressors. If you're a student of the scriptures, you know that what Jesus is doing here is he's referring to that famous passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, where you have this mysterious figure who was described as a suffering servant, this individual who would somehow atone for the sins of Israel. And we go back to chapter 53 in Isaiah, verse 12, we find these words. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Scripture is looking forward to the time of Jesus. Describe Jesus as being numbered with the transgressors. And two times in this one verse, that word transgressors is used. And if we were to dig just a little bit deeper in the the scriptures, and specifically in the, the Hebrew language, we find that that word transgressor means one who crosses the line, or one who revolts. You can legitimately translate it as as rebels or renegades and outlaws. So when Jesus says he must be numbered with the transgressors, we should hear him saying, I must be numbered among the rebels, the renegades, and the outlaws. This is why Jesus is saying he needs them to be armed in this moment. Now, many of us refer to that passage in Isaiah about him being numbered with the transgressors, and we think this describes when Jesus was crucified. He was crucified between two other criminals. And certainly there's an application on that level as well, and I don't want to say it's not. But Luke highlights this passage, and Jesus says this needs to be fulfilled right now. What's going on? Let's remember the context. In the very beginning of this chapter, we are told that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to put Jesus to the death. They wanted to, to kill him, but everyone is thinking, Jesus just might be the Messiah. And so they're actually afraid of the crowds. And so they're trying to figure out, how can we take Jesus out so that we don't end up being on the receiving end of a riot of people who are mad at us? And then the very next breath, Luke tells us Satan, the, the accuser, entered Judas called Iscariot, who is of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. Judas has already left the Last Supper to go betray Jesus. We're not sure exactly why. Maybe he's grown frustrated with Jesus' talk about peace and laying down his life, and this isn't what he was signing up for. Maybe it was, he was just greedy. We know that he was in charge of the money bag, there are implications in the scriptures that he kind of helps himself to that sometimes. And so he goes and he talks to them about how he might betray them. And these religious leaders were glad. They agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. What's interesting is in, in the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> we're told that 
there was a whole company that came with Judas, who arose and brought, brought him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. This is the end goal. This is what the religious leaders are wanting to do. They're wanting to, to bring Jesus to the Roman authorities so they can take him out. And so they need to be able to accuse Jesus of being a king, and not just any kind of king, but a seditious king. Pilate was well aware of the predictions that there would be one that would come and assume the throne of David, that he would lead the nation of Israel, and he would throw off all oppression. The Gospel of John tells us that from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, "Um, I release to you this man. I'm sorry, this should say this. Let me start that all over again. Just delete that little section there. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Basically, if you let Jesus go, we're going to go complain to Caesar that you're letting seditious insurrectionists run your little section of Judea. And a little bit later, Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Oh, that should send a chill down your spine. (laughs) These people who despised Caesar, coming before Pilate, pretending that they love him so they can get Jesus killed. Anyway, that's the end game. That's where they're going. So they need to be able to arrest Jesus on a pretense that he's hanging out with outlaws and with rebels and renegades. Back to the gospel. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So he told them just previously, if you don't have a cloak, go sell your, I'm sorry, if you don't have a sword, go take your cloak and sell it and buy one. So he's telling his 11 disciples that they need 11 swords. And so one of them says, look, Lord, here are two. And Jesus said to them, okay, that's enough. This will get the job done. We go back and consider those options that I mentioned a while ago with the commentators um, <laughs> and saying that, uh, some of them saying that, We're just pretending like Jesus didn't really say this. When it comes to this place right here, where they said, look, Lord, here are are two swords, they basically said Jesus saying, that's enough. Stop it. Knock it off. But I'm not buying that. When they said that Jesus was being dramatic, that he really didn't mean for them to buy swords, if Jesus didn't mean for them to do that, now would be a really good time to clarify that. (laughs) Don't you think? Jesus was just being dramatic for effect, and they're like, here, Jesus, here are some swords. That would have been a really good time for Jesus to say, you guys, you're taking me literally. I don't mean that. I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm just trying to to get you to be ready for whatever comes down the road. But I'm not really buying that either. If Jesus was referring to the, the future expansion of the gospel down the road when they would be sent out to all the nations to preach his gospel, realizing that they thought he meant literally then they need swords right this moment, that would have been a good time for them as well, for Jesus to say, guys, leave these swords here. We don't need them in this moment. But what if Jesus knew that the hour of testing is upon them, that each of them, including himself, 
would be tested for their ultimate allegiance. And what if in a matter of moments, each of them would have the option to choose between God's way of peace or to repay evil for evil, violence for violence, vengeance for vengeance? What if Jesus knows what's about to happen? And he knows that he's going to be tested and his disciples are going to be tested. And what's in their heart is going to be laid open for them to see. The scriptures make this transition here in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 39, it says, he came out. That is, they were having that Lord's Supper in the upper room. Now they're coming out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here's the famous Garden of Gethsemane. This is where the olives are pressed for their oil. It's one of Jesus' favorite places to visit in Jerusalem. He would go there and he would pray. And as he gathers there with them, he wants them to do one thing. They have one job, one responsibility. And that is to pray that you may not enter into temptation. What do you think Jesus has in mind here? They know that Judas has gone out. They know that Jesus is going to be betrayed on some level. And so when Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, what temptation might that be? No doubt it's to deny Jesus, to stay loyal to him. But maybe something else is going on here. For Jesus to be betrayed and arrested is going to stretch them and press them to the breaking point. What will they do in that moment? We're told in verse 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And we don't talk this way in our modern context. We say, you know, remove this cup from me. But in the scriptures, for someone to, to drink a cup metaphorically meant basically that they, they come to their destiny, that this is the moment of decision. This is what everything in their life has been leading up to. And so to drink this cup is to speak in a metaphor for embracing this moment in time, to embrace my destiny. And so Jesus, as he considers what's about to happen, falls down on his face and he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knows that the plan it's for him to go to the cross where he would take upon himself the sins of transgressors and he would be brutally murdered. And as Jesus looks forward to that moment, he has in this particular moment a request. Father, if there's any other way, please show it to me. Without reading too much in here, if the plan is for Jesus to bear the sins of the world, Jesus is, is asking, is, is there another way that I can accomplish salvation rather than dying for these people? That's what he's asking. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But he says these words, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What beautiful words. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here Jesus, as he looks about, uh, to what's about to happen, in a sense, shrinks back from it at the horror and the terror of what's going on. And yet, if this is what God wants for him, Jesus says he wants to want that. 
He's already told his disciples, as Matthew points out, the gospel writer, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Jesus, as he contemplates what he's about to do, is deeply sorrowful. Even to the point of death. Have you ever been so grieved you felt like you were going to die? I've, I've had moments where I wanted to die. <laughs> In moments of grief where it just seemed like it would be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with this. But I actually never felt like I was going to die. But here Jesus is so overcome with sorrow that he's at the point of death already. Can you imagine the weight that he is carrying? Luke tells us there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. The father seeing Jesus in this weakened condition dispatches an angel. It's probably Michael the archangel or maybe Gabriel coming there to strengthen Jesus. He needs supernatural help in this moment. And then Luke tells us, verse 44, in being in agony, See Jesus in this moment, overwhelmed with sorrow and in agony. As you think of someone who's in agony, what, what does that look like? What images come to your mind? Take that and multiply it by, I don't know, 10,000. <laughs> and that might be a picture of what Jesus is, is experiencing here. Being in agony, he, he prayed more earnestly. And I wish Luke would maybe have told us a little bit about what he's praying here. Maybe over and over again, Jesus is saying, not my will, but yours be done. Strengthen me, Father. Not my will, but yours be done. But in this moment, Luke finds it sufficient to just tell us that Jesus, in extreme agony, just leans into his desperation and continues to pray. And then we're told his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. People have looked at this over the years and were like, is this just kind of a metaphor? I mean, what's, what's going on here? Is this just a kind of a poetic way of, of saying that, that Jesus is really stressed out? Actually, there's a medical condition called hematidrosis. I looked this up online. This is from healthline.com. and It says, hematidrosis is an extremely rare condition in which you sweat blood. In rare instances, the flight or fight response can trigger the rupture of capillaries in the body. Capillaries are tiny blood vessels located throughout tissue and are also located around the sweat glands. In cases of severe fear or stress, these tiny blood vessels can burst and cause blood to exit the body through the sweat glands. That's what's going on here in this moment. Jesus is stressed out to the max. Anxiety is grabbing hold of him. Jesus is about to face the onslaught of the powers of darkness, not to mention the sins of the world. He's about to watch those he spent the last three years with betray him, with no one to stand by his side. There's just been some cases here and there that have been documented. For example, people who, who right before they're executed it's been seen that they sweat blood. There's been accounts where soldiers about to be sent into what's their certain death, sweat blood. Jesus here is sweating blood. 
We're told in verse 45, when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Guys, why are you sleeping? If you knew what was about to happen, you would be desperately praying that you may not enter into temptation. Your world's about to be turned upside down. The Gospel of Matthew, the author, tells us that Jesus said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. The Gospel of John, in his account of the life of Jesus, records these words. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So let's be clear, my friends. What is happening in this moment is that both the enemies of Jesus and his disciples have weapons. What's going to happen? You see, Jesus wanted his disciples to pray that they would not succumb to temptation. What would be the temptation in this moment? The hour of testing for his disciples has now arrived. What will they do? What should they do? Friends, if you were reading with me from the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, you see Jesus teaching them, preparing them for this very moment of what they should do. Let me just give you five examples real fast. Uh, these little nuggets, these little uh, trail of breadcrumbs along the gospel of Luke that would tell us what we maybe should expect the disciples to do in this moment. For example, back in chapter 7, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other side. Jesus is correcting this understanding where it's okay to love your, your neighbors, but your enemies, you're free to hate. And Jesus is like, no, love your enemies. Or how about this? He's already told them what the end game is. Back in chapter 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's told them over and over again, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to be tortured. He's going to die. And then on the third day, he's going to be raised again. But this is, was inconceivable for them. The Jews believe there's a resurrection on the final day when God sets everything to right. There's no resurrections in the middle of history. Plus, messiahs don't die. Or how about this one? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus, in effect, says, every day I want you to be willing to be crucified for me. <laughs> There's that one time where Jesus had brought his disciples to this little town of the Samaritans. They rejected him there. <laughs> When the disciples, uh, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's what they deserve, Jesus. They deserve to burn. They deserve to fry. How dare they reject you? 
But Luke tells us he turned and rebuked them. He didn't just say, guys, you knock it off. When you're being rebuked, usually someone's in your face. They're giving you the what for? They're trying to tell you that you have messed up big time. You got it completely wrong. One last breadcrumb here for us. There's that time when he sent them out, right? It's one of the same times that he referred to earlier. He says, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of our town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. If people reject you, I don't want you to do anything else but just knock the dirt off your feet and go on your way. So, with those breadcrumbs in mind, what should we expect the disciples to do after spending three years with Jesus, the Prince of Peace? You know the answer. We would expect them to lay down their swords and follow Jesus even to the cross. What I want to suggest to you, my friends, is Jesus wanted his his disciples to be armed so that they could have consciously the choice to lay down their arms in this moment when his enemies come to arrest him. If Jesus wanted them to take up their swords and to kill in his name, that would go against everything he's taught them to this moment, right? Everything they know about Jesus would be turned upside down. That's why when we saw earlier when Jesus told them to to sell your cloak and buy a sword, we're scratching our heads because we're like, this goes against everything we know about Jesus, right? Let's see what happens. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus. But Jesus said to him, Judas. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? A kiss is a, is a sign of respect. Inferiors would kiss either the cheek or the hand of a superior. Or this was a gesture that, that friends did to welcome one another. So he just says, Judas, are you really going to betray me with a kiss? As the disciples look around and see what's going on, they see these crowds with their weapons coming for them. Those around them heard him and saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the swords? Is this the moment, Jesus, when we fight for you? Is this the moment when we we take out your enemies and we enthrone you as the true king? Is Is this when we do what revolutionaries do? Is this when we do what rebels do? Renegades, outlaws. Is this when we do the insurrection? For Jesus had an ant- even a moment to answer. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. The Gospel of John tells us who that was. It was Peter. He took out a sword. You think about this. I was talking with my family about this. If you cut off someone's ear, I mean, you don't like come at the side to do that. You come down. At least if, if I'm imagining this correctly, Peter's going for the kill shot. He's, he's taking his dagger. He's coming up over the top. I think he's aiming to split the guy's head in two. I don't know if the guy moves or Peter has a bad aim, but it comes down and slices his ear off. 
Surely this is what Jesus wants. Verse 51, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Can you imagine this moment? It's tense. There's Judas the betrayer. There's, there's a crowd with weapons. Here's Jesus' 11 disciples. They got two swords. They see what happens. Jesus, give us the word. We'll do it. Peter doesn't even wait. He goes for the kill shot. This man has blood gushing out of the side of his head. Jesus says, stop. No more of this. And he touches the man's side of his head and heals him. What a, a beautiful picture of, of Jesus reversing the curse of this world. Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs? This word in Greek, robber, can mean a robber in certain contexts. But in other contexts, it means an insurrectionist. Remember that Jesus said he had to be numbered with the transgressors. We're told that Barabbas was a, a robber. That's how the English translates it. If you look at my translation, I use the English Standard Version. There's a footnote that says, or an insurrectionist. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that the man who had been thrown, he was the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. So Jesus is saying, are you coming at me like I'm an insurrectionist? Remember, this is what they want to do. They want to present him before the Roman authorities as one who's trying to overthrow the Roman government to get Jesus killed for them. Verse 53, he says, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You had plenty of time to arrest me. You could have done it at any moment. I have not been hiding. I've been in Jerusalem. I've been in the temple. Everyone knew where I was. Why didn't you come for me then? But this is your hour. This is the moment of the power of darkness. Let's stop our study of the Gospel of, of Luke with this passage here and just ask the question, why does Luke record this trial, this, this temptation in his historical biography of Jesus? And what I want us to see is that in their moment of testing, the disciples failed. Everything that Jesus has been teaching them has been leading up to this moment. He wanted them to pray that they would not enter temptation. And they failed. But in Jesus' moment of testing, he succeeded. He could have given them the green light and say, slaughter them all. He could have chosen a different route than what God had ordained for him. And say, not your will, God, but mine be done. But he didn't. Here, the disciples failed. Jesus succeeded his trial. Let me put it slightly differently. The disciples were willing to shed the blood of their enemies. However, Jesus was willing to have his own blood shed for his enemies. It's a world of difference. And so I, I was just thinking about how we could apply this just in our own lives and our own thinking. So in this next couple of moments, let me run just through a few options for us. There's no way, I mean, there's, there's probably no doubt a, a number of ways we can apply this, but I, I just want to bring a few to your attention. 
Let's lament how followers of Jesus have gotten it so wrong so often throughout history. Going back to the time of Constantine, when his soldiers declared him to be the new emperor, and he tells them that he had this vision in the sky of a cross being shown to him with the words, in this sign, conquer. And then he had his his soldiers paint a cross on the front of their shield to go and to kill in the name of Christ. And over and over again throughout history, Christians have gotten it wrong. They have taken up the sword to kill others in the name of Jesus. They've taken up the sword to kill one another in the name of Jesus. And someone says, well, that, that happened a long time ago. No, it still happens today. There are places in the world where Catholics and Protestants hate each other enough to kill one another. How ironic that the very symbol of a willingness to die for one's enemies has now been transformed into a sign of vengeance upon one's enemies. Jesus didn't give them this sign, this symbol of the cross, as an illustration for them to intimidate their enemies but to help them remember they're called to die for their enemies. And this, this, this happens, I, I was just reminded of this incident. There's a pastor named Greg Locke in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, who this last year was holding a, a revival. It's called America's Revival. And he told the crowd, we still believe in our First Amendment right to gather, that if you show up and impede our First Amendment right to worship, we're going to meet you at the door with our Second Amendment rights. In other words, if the government wants to keep us from worshiping, we will kill you. I wonder if this pastor has ever read this account that we just went through in the Gospels. Nowhere does Jesus say if if authorities prevent you from gathering to worship, you have the right to kill them. And I wish I could tell you that the crowd left in disgust. But what they did is they stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Friends, I hope that if if I were to say something like that to you, you would go to the elders and say, we need to get rid of John. He is not teaching the gospel of Christ. And I hope they would say, we're already on it. I love the freedom to worship. Don't get me wrong. But if the day comes, and it might in our country, where the government shuts down churches, you don't have the right, then, to kill people. I don't have that right. Matthew tells us in this same account that we're looking at, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I wonder if this pastor has ever heard that from Jesus. The Apostle Paul would later apply the teaching of Jesus and say, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it lives on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
One of my favorite authors is a, is a man named Scott Sauls. He's a pastor in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, I think it is. And he has, in one of his books, this profound question. He says, what would it look like for Christians to become not only the best kind of friends, but the best kind of enemies, returning insults with kindness and persecution with prayers? What is it about Christians who have gotten this so wrong over the years? How about this? Another point of application. Let's look to Jesus both for his example and for his empowerment. I mean, we have for us the memory of what Jesus did on the cross, the willingness that he was willing, how far he's willing to go to be able to pay for the sins of people like you and me, to liberate us from those tendencies, to bring us into relationship with him, to grant us eternal life in his Father's kingdom. What a wonderful Savior. As we think about that, Let's also let his example inspire us and, and look to Jesus when we don't want to love our enemies for empowerment to do so. Peter, <laughs> that Peter who came in for the kill shot, he would later write to some Christians these words. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I wonder if Peter, in writing those words, just looked back to that time where he monumentally failed and thought, you know, if I could do it all over again, I wish I'd responded like Christ. And here's the last point of application. Let's pray with Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This isn't just a prayer for Jesus to pray. This is a prayer that you and I need to pray all the time. We need to be mindful that our, our wills sometimes are in conflict with God's. Sometimes we want something different than we know that God wants for us. So what would it look like, my friends, if in every trial, every temptation that you face, we viewed it, not as, an we viewed it as an opportunity to say, rather, not my will, but yours to be done. My friends, you're going to have opportunities this week to be able to submit yourself to the way of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Peter would also write these words. He says, For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory. Remember earlier I asked you the question, what if, what if you were to see the circumstances in your life as those times when you're being tested, your character is being tested, the, the heart is being put on display. And what if God intends good for that? What if sometimes the heat gets turned up in your life so you have opportunities to say, not my will, but yours be done? And what if you were to believe that God was in those moments making you more like Jesus? And just as metals enter into the fire, you know, the heat is turned up and the dross and the impurities is, is skimmed away, what if you began to see the circumstances in your life as, as those very things where God is at work testing you and trying you, making you more like Jesus? My friends, sometimes the hotter the fire, actually all the time, the hotter the fire, the purer the gold. So Mercy Hill Church, may you follow Jesus in a commitment to live by this act of surrender. Not my will, but yours be done.